Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today we have a special edition of Spectrum. We're talking with Washington Post reporter Wesley Lowry, who specializes in covering police shootings of citizens and Black Lives Matter. He also recently wrote a story about the history of policing in Dallas, where five police officers were recently killed by a lone gunman. Wesley was part of the 2014 Washington Post team that won a Pulitzer Prize for breaking news reporting. He also has a new book coming out in November called They Can't Kill Us All, The Story of Black Lives Matter, published by Little, Brown, and Company. Wesley, talk about some of the figures you and uh, your group at the Washington Post have come up with first time in history. Of course. And, you know, so I'll start by saying that we, we began this project now almost two years ago, a year and a half ago, because after the unrest in Ferguson, Missouri, you know, when I was on the ground reporting, I would often, because I had smart editors, get asked a very specific question. They'd say, you're quoting the police union as saying that the shootings, these shootings never happen, that this is a one-off anecdote. And the civil rights groups are saying that black men are getting gunned down and executed in the street every day. Well, we're the Washington Post. What's the answer? There's got to be some stats, right? Did you call the Justice Department? Did you call the Attorney General? Someone must know. And the more we drilled into it, we realized that there weren't any official stats. You know, that the the best count of how many people were being killed by the police was being kept by, you know, a, a, there's two different counts. One was being kept by a crowdsourced website, killedbypolice.com. Another by a former, by a journalist in Nevada, uh, Fatal Encounters. And so there was no official data. And so what we decided to do is we decided to, to expend our effort and try to track as many fatal police shootings as possible um, beginning with last year. Now we've continued it for a second year. And, and this is, um, us, as well as a, a very similar project done by The Guardian, have essentially provided the most complete uh, data sets that we've seen yet of how many people are being killed by the police. Now, The Guardian, as I understand it, uh, their numbers are a little different because they count people killed uh, not directly by police, but in police encounters. Is that correct? Yes. So the, so the difference is, so it's, it's easiest in some ways to explain the difference by starting with our database. So our database sure. is people who are shot and killed by police, right? So gunfire. Um, and so what that means is people who are not included in our database would be someone perhaps who is 
who is tased. You know, the police use a stun gun and that results in their death. Someone who might be choked to death. So Eric Gardner would not be in our database. Someone who dies in some type of weird police encounter in custody, Freddie Gray, for example, or Sandra Bland. So those are examples of people who would not be in our database, but who would be in the Guardian's database. Ours is focused specifically on the use of guns by police. So people who are shot and killed. And I believe your figures show 512 citizens shot and killed by police so far this year in 2016? Yes. And so on average, you have about three people who are shot and killed by a police officer every single day. Um, and so, yeah, we're at 512, although I think that might be as of over the weekend or as of yesterday. And so it might be a day or two behind, but we try to keep it relatively in real time. About 512 so far. That's a little bit of an uptick from the first six or seven months of last year. We're on pace to have a few more shootings than we did last year. Last year, we had 990 fatal police shootings in all of 2015. We're on pace to certainly top 1,000 this year, maybe even a little bit higher than that. And how many of those specifically are, are black people who have been shot and killed? And, and so what we see is about 10%. And as we talk, I'm, I'm pulling up our full number, so I don't misquote any of them. But I, I think that, um, you know, we typically have about 10% are, are black folks. Um, and the vast majority of people who are shot and killed by police are, um, are armed. Um, and many, many of them are white. Um, but one thing that's interesting as we look at it is they're, you know, very often we want to make those comparisons in raw numbers, but it's always important to take a look at those comparisons in terms of rates, right? And so what we know is that Black people make up about uh, 12 to 13 percent of the U.S. population, and yet they end up being somewhere about 25 percent of the people who are shot and killed by police. And so there's a there's a disparity there. And so for example, go of, ahead. Of the most recent, no, so I just, I just checked our database, and so we are at. 522 people who are shot and killed this year by police as of today they must have just updated it this morning um and 128 of those people are black so that is about one black person a day am i right close yes it averages out to about one black person a day is shot and killed by a police officer. And an unarmed black person is about every i want to say every 6 or 7 days. So how does that compare to uh, police in the line of duty being being shot and killed? So police are killed much more rarely in the line of duty. Now, I'm, I'm not going to say that it is rare um, or that it never happens, but it happens about once a week. Right. And so so this year we are at I want to I want to say we're in the 20s. Uh, of in terms of officers who are who have been shot and killed, we're on pace to be about 50 officers shot and killed, which is around the average, the 10 year average. Uh, each year, about 50 people are 50 police officers are shot and killed in the line of duty. Um, and so again, you've got about one officer shot and killed per week, and about three uh, three citizens who are shot and killed by an officer every day. You get a lot of politicians, Rudy Giuliani most recently, uh, talking about black-on-black -black, uh, deaths and and trying to bring that into the discussion of Black Lives Matter and, and police shootings of, of black citizens. What's your response to that? You know, I, I often think that it is someone who spends a lot of time um, in black communities and talking to black activists and black pastors and black people. Um, you know, I, I tend to find that to be a bit of a straw man argument and not completely relevant to the conversation, right? And there's a few reasons. First, because very often um, 
people try to frame it as in you shouldn't be mad about this problem. You should be mad about this other problem. And the beautiful thing about humans is that we're nuanced and that we're capable of being upset about more than one thing, right? And so I've never gone to a community, whether it be St. Louis or Chicago or Baltimore, where there are not stop the violence rallies every single weekend or every single month, right? The same ministers who are and activists who are talking out about the need to not have any um, officer-involved shootings are also the people asking the gangs to put down their guns, right? And so there is a concern about both things in, in many communities. But the other thing, too, is that I think sometimes that creates a false equivalency. Like what we have to remember is police officers are the government, right? If a police officer kills someone, the government killed someone. Like, And as taxpayers, I think we have an obligation or an understanding that we should know more and demand a higher standard and more accountability for the behavior of agents of the state than we do criminals. Like murderers murder. Murderers murder. And that's a terrible thing. And we all would like to see less murder, right? But when someone is killed by our government in our name, right, using a taxpayer gun and taxpayer bullets and they kill a taxpayer, I'm of the belief there should be a file cabinet where I should be able to pull a manila envelope and it should tell me everything I should know about that because that person was killed basically in our name as taxpayers. And so I guess that I think there's a little false equivalency sometimes between uh, black on black crime or white or, or murder, homicide and um, and then police involved shootings. So I think they're just different things. Most recently, you've done a, a pretty major story on the Dallas Police Department and, and its history. First of all, why did you take that on and why did you think that was important before we get into the findings? Of course. So what I, what I thought was, in, was important was that, you know, Dallas was being praised um, pretty effusively um, in light of the five officers who were killed there um, and was a tragic mass shooting of police officers that came at, after hours of peaceful protests there. And so it was this idea of what context can we put this in? And a lot of people were talking about Dallas, which is considered one of the more progressive departments, that one of the departments that's done more work than a lot of other places at both being uh, responsive and encouraging of protest, as well as a place that is seen as like a shining beacon of hope of what a big city department can be as it relates to its relationships with the community. And so so my editors kind of had this question of like, if there was going to be a place where officers were going to be killed, like, isn't there this cruel irony of it being this place that has done so much work? And so in order to understand that, uh, we decided to do this kind of dive into the history of this department. What can we find out about this department? about its history, uh, good and bad, and about the steps it's taken to now be considered one of the better ones in the nation. And when you did that, you, you found a, a real mixed bag in the history, correct? Of course. So Dallas was once considered one of the worst police departments in the country as it relates to these things, right? This We're talking L.A. in the 90s bad, um, you know, where, yeah. where we were having a, a spat of terrible shootings of black and Hispanic people, a, a, a rough culture um, in the department, almost no relationships where you, and then, and then on top of that, officers being targeted in response to that because there didn't feel like there was any accountability. I mean, this was, it was, when you go back to the archives, every, almost every major paper did a huge front page story on how Dallas was a racial time bomb that was ticking. If you go back to 87 and 88 and 89, it was that bad. Reporters were being sent in from New York and L.A. and Chicago to basically write about how crazy this place is. Um, they are so terrible. What was interesting was that in the 90s, 
you have the election of uh, Ron Kirk, who's the first black mayor of Dallas. Um, and, and you also have the election of several judges and district attorneys and uh, you county commissioners. You have kind of the first influx of black elected officials, many of whom had been activists who had been, you know, kind of talking about police brutality and policing issues. You have a series of police chiefs who are hired, again, by Ron Kirk, this mayor. Um, and he brings in a series of chiefs who are outsiders, who aren't from the department, who have maybe come from departments that have gone through reform previously. And you start to see a cultural shift. Now, it's hard. You know, one thing that's important is it's always a very relatively low bar when you're talking about police departments that do community relationships well, because when you're honest about it, and the chiefs will tell you this, when you're honest about it, no big city department has the, a great relationship with their minority communities. It's not, it's, it's this is a difficult part of policing that we've not figured out yet. Um, but they did manage to turn around their relationship pretty drastically. And under the current chief, really cut down on complaints in terms of, uh, complaints in terms of police brutality. And so it was a surprise that this was this police department was a, a target. Uh, your your conclusion was the irony there that your editors suspect. Yes. Oh, no, certainly. You know, especially because, you know, again, this chief, uh, Chief Brown, has been very um, in many ways encouraging of the protest. The, the local protesters there are, are not, you know, do, do not are not necessarily calling for his job. They're not, um, you know, they're not necessarily targeting officers. Um, they coordinate the protests very often coordinate with the police, let them know what's going on. The police department itself was was posting pictures to its Twitter feed earlier that night of the protesters of protesters uh, posing with police officers. And so this was very much like this is a place where even the, the activists certainly say there are still disparities and there are still things they want to protest. But this chief and this department has been very proactive in encouraging these protests, not trying to tamp them down, not trying to disrupt them, but basically saying, hey, we want you guys to be safe. And so it is very surprising that that at one of these protests, there would be violence. Now, again, it's hard because, you know, in a country with as many guns as we have, and when people are this upset or this angry, it could happen anywhere. You know, police officers could be, if, if one sick person wants to target police officers, they could do it in any city. Um, but there is certainly this kind of sick irony that it happened in Dallas, a place where the police have very much, in fact, encouraged uh, the protests. As I've said, you, you've been following this for a couple of years and, and following Black Lives Matter for a couple of years. We had these two shootings in, in Louisiana and Minnesota and then the five uh, deaths of police officers in Dallas, the memorial ceremony this week. A as an observer, as a reporter, did that memorial service, those five deaths, overshadow the deaths of the two individuals the week before? You know, I don't know that it. I don't know that it overshadowed it. It seems like it evaporated from media in, in it, many it, places. It, and that's and that's the thing, right? The media, unfortunately, we can very often only focus on one thing, <laughs> and and whatever that is. And so, granted, and so granted, this week we're going to start focusing on. We're going to go back to Trump and the RNC, no matter what, whether it was Dallas or whether it was something else. We were already getting getting ready to pivot back to politics, but but I but I do think you're right that there was a that it sucked up some of the energy now. Those shootings did, I do think, awaken or reawaken a lot of people who had been upset about this a lot last year. And then this year, there hadn't been as much discussion about policing. You know, these are the first two names to kind of go viral. Um, you know, Alton Sterling and uh, Philando Castillo are the first two 
um, this year who we know who's we can say their name and someone knows who they are. Um, otherwise, there were no police violence victims from this year. And so I do think that this kind of reawakened a lot of people. Um, and so even if the media doesn't pay a lot of attention, I do think that, that there is an emotion and some energy that had not existed prior to these two shooting deaths. I know you've received awards and, and you're sort of a, a real aficionado of, of uh, social media and, and use it uh, a great deal. Talk about your perception, Wesley, of, of the role of social media in covering these, these kinds of situations, either from the people involved uh, to reporters using it. So social media in many ways um, takes the place of traditional media in the immediate aftermath of one of these incidents, right? So the Alton Sterling shooting in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, local activists got a hold of the video and they published it to Facebook and Instagram. They didn't take it to the local newspaper, to the local TV station. They published it themselves and it had gone viral and it was trending internationally before a single media outlet had gotten the rights to the video. Um, what also we, we also see happening is that people start people themselves use social media to start investigating, start asking questions, saying, who is that officer? Wait, what, what is that badge number in that photo? What's the number for the, you know, we see this often when a high profile protester is arrested or a lot of protesters are arrested in a demonstration. People are posting the number, call the jail and ask when they're going to get out. And all of a sudden the jail is getting thousands of calls, right? And so it's fascinating to watch these stories play out because in both of these cases, I found out about both of these cases through, and I'm relatively well sourced in these spaces. I know a lot of the activists. I found out from both of them through Twitter hashtags. I said, oh, who's this person people are tweeting about? Stumble upon a video and I, and I start writing. And so it's a way that, you know, and on top of that, you know, very often, unfortunately, because so many newsrooms have been so thinned out, there aren't as many people. Sometimes these stories break late. There are some of these stories we would not write about if thousands of people didn't start talking about them online. It's a way of, it's a democratizing effect on media. It forces us to pay attention to things that we otherwise might have chosen not to. How do you respond to some of the critics out there and say, really, there aren't more shootings. We don't have uh, data. You've only done it for two years. It's just that we know about them more because of social media. How do you respond to that kind of argument? You know, I actually, I actually think that argument might be true. Right. I, I'm willing to believe that there were m many more shootings in the 80s and the 90s. I'm willing to believe there are more shootings 10 years ago. Right. But knowing that there are a thousand a year, that strikes me as too many shootings. Right? And I think it strikes a lot of people when you when you start lo looking at those numbers, you have three people a day. There's got to be some way we can prevent this. Right. And then when you get the data, it's the, the only way to the only way to begin to limit the number of people who are killed, because I think we all want fewer dead people, I, I think, right? Sure. The only way to do that is to do this analysis of these shootings, to figure out, okay, are there certain trends in these shootings? Are there certain tactics we could retrain? Are there certain situations where maybe we shouldn't send a police officer? Are there certain sh situations where we should change the way this is handled, right? And the only way you can do that is if you can actually look at the entire universe and run that analysis. Um, I think it's a good thing that there's more media coverage. I think every single person who's killed by the police, there should be a good faith effort by local media and national media to figure out what happened. Because, again, like this is it's our job as the media to hold powerful people and powerful institutions accountable. And the police are an extremely powerful institution. Is it too early to come up with uh, trends or threads or is it still just isolated incident and facts of that particular case compared to another compared to another are you getting a yeah, patchwork well, or is it oh, okay. is it more thread like 
No, there's certainly threats. You know, so so look, when you look at um, you know, one of the biggest ones is is mental illness. So one in four of these police shootings is of someone who's in the midst of some type of mental or emotional crisis. And so what that means is that one that that speaks to the status of our social services nationally. We do not, you know, we um, in the 80s closed down a lot of what were then called asylums or mental health hospitals, and we've never reopened them. Um, and as we've seen, as we've gone through the recession, as local um, city councils budget less money uh, for mental health services, as state governments budget less money for mental health services, and, and then as the federal government budgets less money for it as well, we're seeing more and more people who are out in the streets or who are living at homes without the proper medication, without Medicare, or um, without medical services. And so we're seeing police officers having to be social workers, right? But social workers with guns is a very, very bad combination, right? You're, you're calling, we're seeing cases where mothers are calling the police because their schizophrenic son is acting out with his screwdriver in his hand, you know, or, mm-hmm. or the small pocket knife that he holds on to because he gets scared of the voices he hears. And then you insert a man with a gun and that's almost never <laughs> going to deescalate that situation. And so uh, mental illness is huge. The way traffic stops are, are, are done is huge. I mean, uh, Philando Castillo in, in uh, Falcon Heights, uh, Minnesota is a good example of that. Um, and so we've seen, we definitely see some, um, some trends. You look at how many people get shot and killed with knives, uh, not guns. I mean, many of them are guns, right? If if of the 900, about 600 of them are guns. But even if you set those aside, there are 300 shootings where a gun wasn't involved last year. So now we can start talking about, okay, are there tactical issues here? If someone's got a knife, are there other ways to de-escalate this other than having to shoot and kill them? In some cases, no, there's not. Some cases, the guy's r- literally standing above you about to sh- stab you. In other cases, in many cases, there's much more discretion on the officer. And so could we train them differently or prepare them differently to avoid killing people? Philander Castile, uh, NPR reported this morning he had been stopped over 50 sometimes with uh, minor traffic violations. Uh, is, Is that a form of targeting that we're seeing? Is that common? It's it's too common in many places, and you know, and, I, and I've I've seen that reporting from NPR, and the AP's done some good reporting on that as well. I'm not as familiar with with his specific driving history. Right. All I know, that, I know that to be true, but but broadly, right? This is something that came up a lot in the conversation around Ferguson is the way that traffic tickets and then arrest warrants are used, and in many ways, are attacks on the poor, where you're seeing. Um, you know, black people being pulled out, black and Hispanic people being pulled over disproportionately, um, getting ticketed for things that other people might just get a warning for the stacking of tickets while well, your registration's out of out of date and your taillights out and you are over the speed limit. So now here's five hundred dollars worth of tickets instead of the seventy dollar ticket I could give you. Right. And if you are someone who's low, poor or middle class, right, you might not have five hundred dollars right now. You might be trying to pay your rent. You might be work. You know, might have to try to get your car. Fixed. I mean, there's a reason that people let their registration go. Very often it's because right now they don't have the $200. And so leveling ticket upon ticket on top of people like that t- it ends up getting them in this hole they can never get out of. And then their unpaid tickets potentially lead to a warrant or potentially, you know. And so it becomes this cycle where we start to, to penalize the poor um, for being poor. And then people end up in jail for being poor, essentially. And so we've seen this across the country. And we've seen, and we've also seen a higher percentage of, of uh, these shootings of black men and women occurring at traffic stops as opposed to shootings of white men and women, which speaks to how dangerous a traffic stop may end up being uh, for someone of color. We'll be back after this short message. 
The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Let me take you back to Ferguson. Uh, we know that you were arrested there. That was finally resolved. Uh, let's talk about the militaristic nature of police, though, from what you saw there up to what you're seeing today. The, the equipment that police departments have now, it, it, it seems like it resembles war zones. What factor does that play in either police attitude or, or this, this whole context that we're, we're talking about? What I'll never forget is doing an interview, in fact, on the day that I was arrested but in Ferguson, but it was earlier in the day. I was doing an interview with a local minister who ended up being a regular at these protests in Ferguson. And it was, it was after several nights of tear gas, of, of rubber bullets being shot at demonstrators, of, of big riot gear. And I, and I said to him, I asked, I said, what, what does that do as someone, you know, you're a leader in the community and you're coming out to peacefully protest and you see the police come out looking like a robocop. What does that do? And he said, this minister looks at me and he says, when, when I come out with my with my peaceful sign and I'm marching and the and the government responds by sending out a cop in riot gear, in my mind, I think, well, this must be a riot then. You know, this idea that when you meet someone who is peaceful with force, you, you in many ways encourage them to begin acting out. And, and so there's a in many ways a very it only deepens distrust very often in these circumstances. And it's hard because police want to make sure they're safe. And there are certainly nights where people are throwing rocks or bricks at the officers that we've seen several nights where there's been gunfire at, at demonstrations, right? These things can change and move very quickly. So you want your officers to be safe, but it's also very difficult when you're, when, you know, these officers come out and they're sitting behind a sniper scope, um, you know, right. while there's a bunch of church ladies marching in the street, the optics of that are very, are, you know, are very rough. And that only deepens distrust because that church lady is saying, why, why is this man pointing a gun at me? Um, and so, and, and you know, and many of these departments across the country have these toys now because of the surplus system that we have, the federal government had all types of extra and excess uh, military equipment following the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, departments, departments that were being told they needed to prepare for counterterrorism. Um, began stockpiling this stuff. And so then you see a little unrest and all of a sudden the tanks are coming out and the the riot gear is all out and the batons and the, and, you know, a reasonable person might argue, you know, or might ask, why did Ferguson, Missouri have all that gear on the ready? You know, what, what was, what was happening there that they just could all of a sudden roll out with all this gear. And so 
that, that it's been that's always a very interesting dynamic on the ground. Well, you see it time and time again, and it really just uh, resembles war zones. Yeah, no, of course. And what's also interesting always is, and I've got some great colleagues at the Post who cover some military veterans who cover uh, specifically specifically military and military issues and veterans issues. And they always talk about how they get all these calls and emails and Facebook messages from their former, you know, colleagues and about how, you know, looking at this gear and saying, hey, I was in Baghdad and I didn't have that much gear on. Why is this guy in New York got that much? Or, hey, we we, we were fighting Al Qaeda and we didn't have that type of equipment. Why why does the why do the cops in Minneapolis need it? And so that's that's it's always very interesting to watch that because you hear from a lot of a lot of veterans who say who are shocked by how much gear police officers have. Well, you have a new book coming out in November, I think November 15th. It's called They Can't Kill Us All, The Story of Black Lives Matter, published by Little Brown and and Company. Tell us about it. Of course. And so we're still we're still working on it. My editor would be Uh happier if I was working working on it right now. Um, But but we're but we're well, we're getting there. Um, And so essentially what this book project is, it's a first person guide from Ferguson through at least the Mizzou protests in the Quad McDonald the end of last year. Um, this going city to city and telling the stories of both the people who've been killed by the police in these places and placing them in a historical context, both locally and nationally, as well as the stories of the young people who've risen up and become national leaders, right? People like Doreen McKesson or the three women who, who founded Black Lives Matter or Bree Newsome, the activist who took the Confederate flag down um, in uh in South Carolina after the the Charleston massacre. And so it's about telling their stories that why in this moment at the end of the Obama presidency have we seen such such a historical turning point in conversation as it relates to policing, right? Because this isn't new. The police have always been killing people and there's always been these tensions in minority communities. But why right now are we having this conversation? And that's kind of what I seek to answer as well as kind of telling the story through my own eyes as a young reporter working for a big place and how do I try to reckon with this and tell this story accurately and and even again I mean so much of what I'm writing about is the deaths of people who look like me who I could have known um, and the rise of young activists who could have been my could have been my classmates um, whether it be in high school or in college and trying to tell their stories as well and grappling with my own story and this is available now, I believe, for uh, yes, sort of pre purchase with Amazon and I think Barnes and Noble. I saw it there and I I'm sure other places as well. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. It's it's available for purchase for purchase now. Um, anyone can definitely check it out. I um, like I said, we're still we're still working on it and, and you know, we're still even talking about whether or not we might make some tweaks to the cover and that kind of stuff, but we're we're still we're still working hard on it because you know this obviously isn't an issue that's gone away, and we're trying to make sure that you know we have a, a project and a body of work here that is um, you know as up to date as possible, but also that really captures the ethos of the moment of what we're what, what's going on and what we're talking about as we approach the end of the Obama presidency. What what can we say about this period of time? So let me ask you a question. I'm sure that there is no answer to, but uh, where do we go next? This keeps going. We keep having conversations and it keeps going and we keep having conversations and it keeps going. Uh, Do you see an end game here? You know, I don't. And it's difficult. Someone someone tweeted this the other day and I thought it was prescient, you know, that we, we have to remember like the civil rights movement was a 12 to 14 year period. Right. Right. 
Yeah. Um, this was like a long decades of of different conflicts in different places and different conversations. And and I'd argue that we certainly social media and the cell phone camera specifically have created a moment um, in history for us that we are certainly in as it relates to these issues. And and I I don't know if the end is anywhere near in sight. I don't even know if we're even close to the. I don't even know if we're at the the apex of it yet. Right. And right. so I, I definitely think we're going to keep seeing. Um, more conversation around this. There's certainly more conversation has happened about um, whether legislation needs to be passed. I think we're going to have a big conversation that we're not even ready for the conversation yet, but there's a conversation to be had about, do we need to fundamentally change the way we police in this nation? Um, we have 18,000 police departments. Most major world powers have one police department, um, a state police, and they and they are everywhere, right? Unlike us, where we have every, every municipality has its own individual police department. Right. Um, so we don't have any standard standardization of training, standardization of policy, right? If you get shot and killed by an officer on one block, it's completely different than if you get shot and killed on the next block in terms of policy and investigation. So there's a question, and some of the most progressive police chiefs have begun having that conversation, but the nation's nowhere near that yet. And so I think it's going to be really interesting to see kind of how this continues to play out. Um, but what we do know is going to happen is that the police are going to continue killing three people a day, right? And so that pretty, pretty much guarantees that even if there are moments of lull, you know, like we're, we're lulled into a quietness about this, as we had been for most of this year, all it takes is a cell phone camera of one shooting to, as it did with Alton Sterling and then as it did with Philando Castillo to thrust us right back into this moment. Let's say you're up in Cleveland uh, where you went to high school uh, taking care of the convention. Uh, what will you be looking for? Will you be looking for protests or are you on the political side this week? So I'm, gonna, I'm, the, I'm our like, outside guy. And so I will be looking for protests, for demonstrations, for clashes, and then also just hopefully some fun stuff, right? You know, some concerts. And, you know, anytime you have a convention, a ton of people <laughs> come into the city and are, are, you know, doing events and doing concerts. But, you know, I'll be looking to see if there's any unrest. You know, there's a lot of concern because Ohio is an open carry state that Trump supporters might be bringing guns down there and then they might be met by, you know, counter forces who also bring guns. And so there's a little worry about might there be some violence outside and, Unfortunately, <laughs> that's that's kind of been my job is to be the oh, wait, there's an almost riot happening. How quickly can we get Wesley there? And so I will be uh, probably spending some late nights outside uh, outside of the convention. Do you expect Black Lives Matter to have any kind of demonstration there? So I think the local um, the, the local kind of protest community will certainly do some demonstrations. Um, the there is a local Black Lives Matter chapter, but they are actually not the ones who drive a lot of the protest here. Um, in reality, there are a lot of several other groups who kind of protest under the same banner, who are more active in Cleveland, and they, um, you know, and it's going to be interesting. They they certainly have some things planned. Most of the national actors and act national protesters aren't going to be coming here. They're going to wait for Philadelphia. They're going to go to the DNC because, in part, there's this idea. They basically have this idea that we can pick at Trump all we want. We can interrupt Trump all we want, and all that's going to do is get us beat up, right? right. But they but they think that if they go to the DNC and they disrupt Hillary, if they create, you know, they can that she might actually try make take steps to try to appease them, and that politically it makes more sense to engage her as opposed to the Republicans. Well, I've heard that the Cleveland Municipal Courts are going to be open from 5 a.m. in the morning to 1 a.m. the next morning. So you could have some long nights. Oh, yes. And I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will have long nights. And, 
and early and early mornings and crazy things. And hopefully I'm going to stay out of handcuffs myself, but it's always unpredictable in those cases. Right. So I'm going to have my lawyer's number quick on the handy. And then, like I said, Philadelphia is going to be the same case, you know, and they're, and they're preparing in the same way, kind of clearing out their jails, buying some extra, you know, wrist cuffs, um, because there's definitely an expectation that there are going to be some people taken into custody. Well, Wesley, thank you so much for giving us your time today and good luck at the convention. Of course, anytime. Thanks for having me. We've been talking with Wesley Lowry, a Washington Post reporter who specializes in covering police shootings of citizens. We've been discussing recent events and the Black Lives Matter movement. We want to thank you for listening to Spectrum. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Next, on another special edition of Spectrum, we'll be talking to three different people and learn how their individual stories tell fear, hatred, and hope in our country. For more information about Spectrum, go to WOUB. Dot .org